Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the Word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As a believer in the kingdom of heaven, and the passage we're looking at this morning answers that question. So let's pray this morning and ask that God would open our hearts and minds to what it means to be a kingdom person. Our Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given to us. <clears throat> a morning that we can come together, look to your word, learn more about what it means to be a believer living in your kingdom, living as a member of your kingdom, submitting to your authority and rule in our lives as our king. So we ask this morning, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the passage we come to this morning, as Melissa read, shows us what it means to think about living in God's kingdom. And as we look at this passage, we see it's going to do a number of things. Now, Ben began us with the Beatitudes last week, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' message to his disciples and many, many others about kingdom living, about what it means to submit to God's rule in our life. And as we look at this passage, Ben, last week with the Beatitudes, we saw those elements of what it means to be blessed. This morning we begin with this part in verse 17, which is really the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Most consider the Beatitudes as something of an introduction, but here we begin Jesus' critical message to be a believer in God's kingdom. And the first thing he does is talk about the need for us to understand and submit to God's word. The second thing he does is continue, as we'll see this morning, about building relationships. How do we build kingdom-type relationships? And he's going to talk about two things we'll see this morning, and in the coming weeks we'll see it others. The first thing he talks about in relationships is about anger and hatred and contempt. And he likens it to not committing murder. And then he talks about lust and sex and adultery. And boy, I can't wait to get to that third point. But he talks about these things in terms of what it means to live in a proper relationship. Now let's think about the first. Where, where are we at in terms of our submission to the authority of God in our hearts and minds and lives? And the first thing we see him talking about is his commitment to the scripture. Now a survey was done not many years ago in which a question was asked, 7,500 ministers, pastors, ministers of all different kinds, about what their understanding of the scripture was. Was it inspired by God in any meaningful, real sense? And when you take a broad cross-section of all of America's ministers, the survey found that three-fourths, 75%, do not believe that the Bible is in any meaningful sense inspired. And so now we're faced with a question, if we can't hear from God, then where are we at? And now we live in a world we know in which people don't believe we've heard from God. And those are even many that attend churches. 
And that's what we want to deal with this morning briefly, to figure out what is it, the, what's the issue here? What's the problem? Because Jesus makes a point to say that it will be fulfilled. Every jot, every tittle, as the King James says, every yod, every mark will be answered and fulfilled. And so to, to diagnose the problem and to help us understand where we're at, I want to just give a brief history of where biblical authority has been and where it's at now. I think we can agree with the conclusion that most people in our world today don't believe the Bible is in any meaningful sense authoritative in their life. It may be something good to consult. We can go to it and look at it. But it doesn't have any meaningful authority. Now, if you go back to the time of Jesus, of course, and he's talking now with his disciples, we see there that he's making the point the Old Testament, the scriptures he talks about, our Old Testament, does have authority. It will last. It will be fulfilled in him, he says. And then we have, of course, the church beginning with the uh, resurrection of Christ. In the early church, there was a recognition of the authority of the Old Testament, the scriptures. But the New Testament's now being written. And those books as well are recognized as having authority. The first hundred years of the church found it with a lot of persecution, as we know. When you come to the time of Constantine, in about the year 300 or so, Constantine then becomes a believer uh, in some sense makes Christianity not only legal, but actually part of the kingdom uh, of Rome. And so now Christianity becomes the official Roman religion. And as the next hundred years would evolve, most of the world of the Middle Ages would be Christian. There's pagans, of course, everywhere, but much of the world was governed by Christians, the church. And so during this time, the question began to be asked again, where is authority? Where does authority reside? And the answer was, in the church, then the Roman Catholic Church, more specific, in the Pope. Authority resides in the Pope. As time passes now, we don't have access to the scriptures. There wasn't the printing press yet until 1440. There was no way for most people to have a scriptures in their hand and read it. They may go to a church of some kind, but what was done there was not the reading and preaching of scripture like we do here, like we do today. It was instead simply a, a, a continuation of the, the mass as the Roman church had devised it. And most people had little conception of what the scriptures were. Think about how lucky we are that we have access to so much scripture available to us at our fingertips. Well, eventually, people are wondering, where is the authority? It's in the church, they said. Martin Luther comes along and says, no, it's back to scripture. And so Luther in the Reformation said, sola scripture. Scripture is what matters. The printing press was invented about 100 years before Luther, but by now it's being well and widely used. So Luther, in the Reformation, is able to print tracts and messages and sermons, and Bibles are slowly beginning to be printed and circulated. And the common person now has access to Scripture. Time would pass, though, when people would begin to question whether or not the Scripture is our only authority. When everybody agreed that the church was the only authority, it made it kind of simple. But now that scriptures are authority, the question was, is it your interpretation or mine? And this is the one question that we have to deal with as well. But is it our, you know, each interpretation? Well, time would continue to pass. And some would come along and say, <clears throat> maybe the answer is not in some revelation from God. Maybe the answer is instead in science. We can find true knowledge in science. And so science begins, and they begin to answer questions of knowledge. And as science grows, it answers more and more questions. And for many people's minds, it's excluding the need for God. We no longer have a need for God. Science would develop, of course, with Galileo and Newton. But then the philosophers would come along and say, but wait a minute. 
We don't need God because of science. We also don't need him because of philosophy. And so, for example, uh, Voltaire would say, how can God exist if there's evil in the world? He would look at uh, an earthquake in Lisbon and say, if natural disasters can happen, we need no God. And then Hume would come along and say, we can't taste and measure and see God. How can we believe in God? How can we believe in miracles? And so those are challenged. And then we'd have Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud, who would, the masters of suspicion, who would say that there's no need for a God. Nietzsche would say God doesn't exist. Marx would say that uh, economics is just a competing of people and that there's no religion needed. And then Freud would say that religion is nothing more than our projection of a God, our imagination, our fantasy, our need for a father figure. And where's authority at? Where's the Bible at? Slowly over time, biblical authority and the need for our understanding and its place in our life begins to dissolve in the hearts and minds of many people. And the church today now faces those same questions because all of us are being confronted by the knowledge of science. Does science really disprove God? Where are we at with this? Now, we live in a world today that has become secularized. Harvey Cox wrote a book a few years ago called The Secular City and talked about the fact that as we urbanize, as societies are built around the cities, people become more technologically advanced and less in need of God and less in need of a revelation from God. Now, this leaves us in a place where people are wondering whether or not we've ever heard from God. C.S. Lewis once gave an illustration I think is very helpful and interesting. He talks about enchantment, disenchantment, and re-enchantment, and he uses the illustration of a bicycle. And when he does, he talks about when you're young. Remember, before you could ride a bike, you saw other kids riding a bicycle. You saw them motoring around, going wherever they wanted, and you wanted only to have a bike one day. And then one day you were old enough and you got your first bike. And the joy and enchantment that a young person has in having a bike and having the ability to ride a bike and move is just joyous. And so there's an enchantment with it. As you get older, you get old enough to get a car, and now you've got a car, and so the bike gets put away. And you're no longer enchanted by the idea of riding a bicycle. You can set it aside because you've got other things to do. You're disenchanted. It no longer means anything to you anymore. But one day you get older. Some of you ride bikes, but many of us have not been on a bike 30, 40, 50 years. And you wish only one more time that I could ride a bike to be re-enchanted by that idea, to have again that idea that there's something that matters. And Lewis uses this illustration to show us that all of us live in a world where we often disengage from God but as we get older and wonder about what happens after death, we think maybe there is a God. Maybe God has spoken to us. What Jesus is saying in these verses is that God has spoken. He has given us his word for us to hear, to understand, to have. And so Paul here, or Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, is talking about this message that comes from God. Now there's two ways we think about hearing from God. On the one hand, there's the natural world around us, natural theology, natural revelation. We can go to the mountains, we can see what God has created and say, there must be a God behind what we see. Somewhere out there, there's a God. There's a God who has spoken. It's kind of like going to an art museum, though. You go to an art museum, you look at a piece of art, you can be enthralled by an artist, by the sculptures of Michelangelo, by the paintings of Rubens or others. But you don't know the artist because you haven't spoken with them. You haven't had words with them. All you can see is their works. You can only imply what they may be like, but you don't really know. 
It's only as you have communication and talk with and work with and learn from the artist that you get to understand who the artist is. God creates. We have his artwork, his creation. But the Bible is his words to us, his communication to us that we can hear from him. And when we learn to hear from God directly from his word, then we get to know not only about God, but a lot more about ourselves. We know who we are. When we think about what Jesus' understanding of the scriptures were, we see, first of all, he understood them to be God's revelation to us, God's word to us. God speaks to us through his written word. And we have that available to us. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and says, not one word, not one jot, not one tittle. And the words used there are uh, the, 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 the dot of an I as such, uh, the uh, small mark like an apostrophe, the yod, which is the smallest letter in Hebrew. They would know, or in Aramaic as well, they would know what that meant. Not a single dot would ever be lost. It's going to be fulfilled. How? In himself. Now think about Jesus' lifestyle in relationship to the word. How did Jesus interact with the word? A few weeks ago, uh, uh, Lars preached on the temptations. And when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the mountains, what happened? He responded by quoting scripture. Jesus always had scripture as central in his life, in who he was. Uh, we'll see again on the cross. When he's on the cross, the words of Jesus from the cross, Matthew, uh, uh, Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, being translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus always quoted the scripture. And when he talks about the scripture being fulfilled in him, that he's not coming to abolish. Now, the word abolish here means literally to destroy, to, to, to break apart, to make of null effect. He says, instead, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And when he says that, he's talking about the idea that he is the one to whom all of these point. Scriptures point to Jesus himself. He is the answer to it all. Now, if I have a cup at a restaurant and it's half empty, it's also half full, to ask a waitress to fill it, I would ask her to put more water in it. And you could have her put all the water in it. That's what it means to fulfill, to fill it up. Now, if that same waitress filled it all up, and as soon as she did, I then dumped it all out, you say, what's the matter with, that's not what it means. The, the idea fulfill doesn't mean to destroy. And that's where a lot of people think fulfill means. When Jesus says he came to fulfill, a lot of people think the idea is that he came to put an end to the law, put an end to the prophets. And that's not what he does. He doesn't dump it all out and say it's of null effect. Instead, he says, it's all pointing to me, to him. He is the answer to it all. And so the scriptures, the Old Testament, are all pointing towards him. Now, this becomes the radical message that Jesus had. And you can imagine hearing him on this hillside as he talked about the law, the prophets. They're really talking all about me. That would set the Pharisees off, as we'd see later. That would upset people in many ways. What really is this all about? And so Jesus looks at the law, he looks at the prophets, and he sees all of this as pointing towards him. And when he does, he's telling us it's telling a story. And he is a part of that story. Scripture itself is a story. 
Now, we began the new year in January. Many of you have uh, devotional books, you know, one a day sort of a thing. And as you read these devotionals, you have a nice uh, verse at the top, a nice thought, and somebody writes a commentary on it. And that's all very good. But sometimes what that does is it leads us to believe that Scripture is nothing but a collection of nuggets, of gems. And what we do is go into it and find a gem, find a meaningful verse, find a life verse, find a particular verse that just has some value and meaning, and then use that alone. And we forget the fact that the Scripture is itself a grand story, a story that God tells, a story that God tells about what he is doing to rescue us, and that Jesus is a part of that story. And so when he says he is the fulfillment of it, he's saying there's a story under all of this, a story of a king who once came for his people and because of sin left, but came again in the tabernacle and then in the temple, but then left again because of the people's sin. Jesus says the king in himself has come again and will leave and come back one more time. And so that's the message of Jesus as the king in the kingdom. And so we talk about the kingdom life, what it means to be in the kingdom. We recognize first there's a king. And secondly, that king has a rule, has a domain, and that we are subjects of that king. We submit ourselves to that king. And so Jesus speaks of it this way. Now, we understand the Bible is a fulfillment of Jesus. It's to be believed. Uh, it's to be enjoyed. But primarily, its purpose is to change our life. It's, it's to confront us. It's to change who we are. It's not simply to be read and enjoyed in, in, in that. It's to change who we are. We think about what we do when we read the Bible. We think about what it means to read it closely. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once tells a story of a man, a dock worker, and this dock worker, uh, he asks him, uh, Spurgeon asks the dock worker, if you were to die, do you believe you would go and spend eternity with God? And the dock worker says, well, yes, I do. Upon what basis? And the dock worker says, well, I recognize my sin. I know that I failed. I know that I've sinned against God, and I've apologized. I've asked, I said I'm sorry, and I won't do it again. I live a good life. I do the best I can. And then Spurgeon asks, imagine that you've run up a debt with a grocer. Imagine you run up a debt, and you owe a grocer money. What if you go to that grocer and say, you know, I know I've run up a large debt. I know I have a debt I can't pay. I'm sorry about that. I won't do it again. So give me more groceries. I won't run up the debt anymore. Would the grocer, Spurgeon asked, accept that? And the dock worker says, well, certainly not. The grocer wants to be paid. The grocer needs to be paid. They're not giving me more groceries because they simply say, I'm sorry about my debt. Spurgeon tells them that's exactly where God's at. Do you think God is any less than that? God also demands payment, but he provides that payment, Jesus says, in himself, that Jesus provides that payment of the debt, that forgiveness comes through him. Now, when we read the scriptures, we see it not only provides its way of salvation, but it confronts and changes who we are. Uh, a few months ago, Lars was preaching on David and Bathsheba. The story there, remember, where David commits a sin with Bathsheba, the sin of adultery. Uh, we'll get to that again. Uh, but when he does, uh, the, he hides his sin. And then the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, 
Imagine, David, that there's a, a ewe lamb out there and some king comes and steals it and takes it away. How horrible would that be? And David says, that's horrible. Take that man down. Execute him. You can't do that. And then Nathan looks at David and says, but you are the man. You are the one that did that. At that moment, the words of the prophet Nathan confronted David directly, confronted him face to face and said, you are the one who committed that sin. Do we ever allow scriptures to confront us that way, just as Nathan did David, to look at us, to evaluate us and change who we are? Reading the scripture is not simply about enjoying its stories and having something to tell our kids. It's about reading in such a way that we see that it's confronting and changing who we are, who we're supposed to be. And so Jesus uses these words in this first section here to talk about the value and importance of Scripture itself. It will not pass away. Now, the next thing he does as we continue on in uh, verse 21 is to speak about the issue of anger. Anger is an issue, of course. Many people struggle with anger in some way. Uh, a few years ago, my family and I, we went up to Yellowstone. And you might know up there at Yellowstone, there's large cauldrons of water underground that's heated from a, a deep underground volcano, basically. And the water there can heat up to over 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And when it does, at a spot called Old Faithful, we know, it then explodes. It shoots off its top. And it does this regularly every 90 minutes. And many of us are just like Old Faithful, blowing up every 90 minutes. We need to now look at what anger does. Now, Jesus asks this question about anger and confronts it. So let's take a look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, the Sanhedrin, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus here confronts this issue of, of anger, and he talks about it uh, in such a way as to challenge our attitudes. We think about anger first. Don't be angry, he says. How does that lead to murder? Now, Jesus begins by saying, you have heard it said, you shall not kill, you shall not commit murder. We might think that that's a clear reference to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. And that's where it comes from. But what Jesus is saying is not simply that. He's saying that it's the interpretation that you've been given. The interpretation that many people had, which is what a lot of us have, is that we shouldn't commit murder. Has anybody here not committed murder? All of us have not committed murder. I mean, I hope. Uh, <laughs> but how many of you committed anger? How many of you have spoken contemptuously? You see, that's what Jesus is getting at. You have heard it said, don't commit murder. He's saying that the Pharisaic and teacher's interpretation of that passage doesn't go far enough because there's more to it than that. And so now what Jesus wants to do is get at the root and cut at the root of murder. And what is that? It begins with anger. You can't get to murder until you first start with anger. You can't get to killing somebody until you first have something deep in your heart and your soul that drives you towards that. And most often, it's anger. Sometimes, it's just complete, utter, pathological corruption of the heart and mind. We see people just killing for the experience of it. But generally, people kill out of passion, kill out of anger. And so, let's just say, Jesus says, don't just not murder each other. Let's not hate each other. Now, when Jesus gives these commands, he's often 
does so in such a way as to not only speak of the prohibition, but also demand its opposite. To not hate means a positive command to actually love. And so Jesus is building in those believers, those of us, an ethic of what love is really all about. So he talks about anger. And then he talks about, as we see in this verse, insult. Uh, do not insult. Now, the ESV we're reading speaks of an insult. If you have an NIV, and many of you do, it, speaks, it has the word raka, R-A-C-A. Raka is not a translation. It's a transliteration. It just takes the word actually directly over from the Aramaic. Raka, what does that mean? The NASB does the best job of translating it as you're a nobody, to speak of somebody as a nobody. It's not an insult. It's not a verbal attack on somebody else. It's instead an attitude, an attitude that that other person just doesn't matter. That other person is of no consequence. That other person is a nobody and a nothing. Now, if you walk around downtown, we see homeless people on the streets. It's hard, I think, for all of us to walk past a homeless person to ignore their cries for help? How are we to respond to that? Yeah, that's a different issue we can't really solve here this morning. But imagine if you're on a hike. You're on a hike up a mountain. You want to hike to the top of Mount Evans. So you're making your hike. And as you do, you pass somebody injured on the road. They've broken a, 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 an ankle. They're laying there crying for help. Do you say in your mind... I'm going to walk past this person because I've got an objective. I've got to get to the top myself. Or do you look at that person with compassion and say, I'm going to stop my hike and help this person meet this need. To walk past a person in need like that is to say that you're a nobody. You don't matter. And what Jesus is confronting in the hearts of all of us is we can't look at other people as though they are insignificant. We can't look at them and say they don't matter at all. Because what the Bible tells us is that all people matter. All people have an infinite value before God. And it is our responsibility to recognize that and to live consistent with that. That all people have value. So we can't treat them as a nobody. We can't call them a fool. And the Greek word there is moron. And we all know what a moron is, a fool. Uh, you can't call a person a fool. Now, a fool simply means a person who has uh, no intellect that works functionally, properly. They make bad decisions, uh, simply foolish. Jesus is talking about the attitudes we have to other people. Now, did Jesus get angry? Yes, often. How is, what's the difference? Jesus' anger was measured against the sin they commit. And that's what we see here because he talks about the sin of the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, what's he talking about there? The idea is this. The Pharisees have a righteousness. The Pharisees were obedient to the law. The Pharisees were scrupulous in maintaining purity. The Pharisees had those certain scrupulous, diligent attitudes. But what they didn't have, and this is where we have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, what they didn't have is what Jesus had, and that's compassion, and that's love. And that's the ability to extend our hand out to help others, to meet the needs of others. When you see how Jesus lived and what Jesus did, 
we see that he lived very different from the attitudes that many of us have. Now, you know the old, what would Jesus do? Contrast that for a minute with the opposite of Jesus. Who would that be? Well, Satan himself. Think now about what would Satan do? What would Satan do? Satan would, first of all, be that kind of a person who has never stepped on, who has never abused, who has never walked on, who never loses, who always has the last word, who always lives in pity and in anger. That's what Satan would do. That's how Satan lives. Contrast that with what would Jesus do? Jesus lives with compassion and love. And so the kingdom ethic that Jesus is talking about here, don't commit murder, go further than that. Don't hate. Don't view people contemptuously. Don't use people for your own personal needs and ends. Instead, it's one of love. And so the message he speaks here gets to that. Now, he goes even further. He says, think about it. Remember when Paul talked about himself being the chief of sinners? What did he mean by that? Paul could look in his own heart and see in his own heart that he had little seeds of evil in every conceivable way. He had seeds of anger. He had seeds of lust. He had seeds of lying, of deceit. He had seeds of idolatry. What Paul was fighting and saying is, don't give fertile ground to those seeds of evil. Paul saw them there. He knew that the difference between himself and somebody who manifested that evil was that the other person may have watered and cultivated the seed of anger, which leads to murder, the seed of idolatry, which leads to a denial of God and a focus on the self. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners because I could see in my own heart and know who I really am. And I think if all of us look deep within, all of us might look in our heart and know that we have seeds in our own heart that others around us don't think we have. But we know we do. And so it's like an acorn. If you water it and plant it, it will grow into a tree that may overpower you and crush you. Now, Jesus goes one step further and says, uh, let's take a look at this first. Um, in verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with them to the court, lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about uh, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember, your brother has something against you. In Matthew chapter 5, he's talking about an offense that you've committed against another person. And you're, 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 you're making your offer at the altar, like in worship. If you remember that another person has and that you've committed offense against them, that they have an anger against you, Jesus says, go to that person and reconcile first. Get it fixed first. Now, in Matthew 18, he flips it and instead says, if a brother has offended you, go to that brother and get it fixed. And so the point that Jesus makes in either Matthew 5 or Matthew 18, you put them together, is whether you're the cause or you're the victim, either way, go get it fixed reconcile with your brother or your sister, your family member in the church. Get reconciled first and then come back in worship. Then come back 
and make your offering. Jesus' concern is in our relationships, in building those relationships, in protecting those relationships, and not letting those relationships decay, to rot. He's wanting to build a family in his kingdom that lives with a different ethic, an ethic of love, an ethic that looks out for and takes care of one another. And that's what he's building here. And so he says, don't blame it on others. Fix your relationship. Now we come to verse 27. He talks about lust. He talks about adultery. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He's talking now about pruning the roots of lust that leads to adultery. Now, many of the commands of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments even, they're sometimes qualified. Are you surprised by this? So, for example, we shall not murder. That You don't kill, right? But the idea there is if it's proper self-defense, there's a qualification not killing someone. If it's proper self-defense, it may be then appropriate. Of course, we should not lie. But then we have the story in Joshua of Rahab. Rahab, who did tell a lie when asked where are the spies at, didn't tell the authorities, the Canaanite authorities, and protected the spies, and she's commended for that. Now, we can get into a whole discussion of ethics and what all of these things mean, but often there are certain qualifications in these commands. But there's no qualification or freedom in the command, don't commit adultery. In other words, he never says anywhere, don't commit adultery unless you find somebody who fulfills you in a better way than your current spouse. There's no freedom to violate this command. And in fact, what Jesus now does is extends it even further. And he talks about a couple of things. First of all, the idea of purity. Uh, and secondly, the idea about passion. His point here is that in a marriage relationship, a covenant relationship, purity is paramount. Now, we often hear um, maintain purity before marriage. You can maintain purity after marriage as well, right? And so purity throughout marriage is important as well. So with our purity, his command here is to make sure we live within a covenant relationship. Now, a covenant is a recognition that we have formalized a commitment one to another. We can live with lust or we can live with love. But love and lust uh, conflict with one another. Uh, lust is about our desire for a, a, a pleasure, our desire for something to fulfill us. Not our desire for the person, but for them as an instrument for our own pleasure. That's what lust is. But love is a desire for a person. And so our commitment to a person is what is central to the marriage covenant. We make an agreement that this one person in our life will be the only person we ever engage in sexually with again. The commitment is, is that this one person is going to be everything in my life. Now, one thing you may know, 
is that as you grow older, uh, when you're young, let's start with when you're young. When you're young and you first meet that person, there's an electricity, uh, a lust, a desire, and a, a, a desire to have, handle, and hold the other person. As time passes, there should be a growing not only of that physical lust, but also of a commitment of love. And as time passes and the electricity begins to fade, as the hearts begin to break down, you want that love to be what lasts. And that's what the marriage commitment is about. Now, we often think of lust and love and sex in such a one of two ways. Either on the one hand, people are very flippant about it. We see that in advertising. We see that in the world around us. On the other hand, you can be very prudish about it and not talk about it at all. And that's probably more from the world in which I come from. You know, we just talk about this stuff very often, right? But uh, you know this book of Song of Solomon? You ever read Song of Solomon? You know in the book of Song of Solomon where it talks about caressing and it talks about hugging? That's not what it means. The translators aren't telling you what it really means. They're afraid to because it's even more intimate than that. The Song of Solomon is not prudish at all. It recognizes and glories in the commitment of sex within a relationship, within a marriage, within a covenant. And that's a value. That's meaningful. Now, Paul looks at this and says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And many can say, I haven't. But then Paul says, don't even lust in your heart for another person. But instead, Control those desires. Now, all of us have lustful thoughts in our hearts and minds. Things pass through. We see others and we think about things this way. Jesus isn't saying that that doesn't happen. He's saying now control that. Direct that. Don't be controlled by those thoughts. Instead, submit yourself to the wholeness and promise that God gives us. Now, one thing I would say as we get close to ending here is this. A lot of people make bad decisions when they're young. They make bad choices. They sin in ways that may haunt them later in life. There may be sexual sins in a person's past that they're sad about, disappointed about, broken up about. But what Jesus says is you don't need to look back on past sexual sins with a feeling of guilt because you look back at those past sexual sins through the cross itself, through the cross itself in which it's been forgiven, in which God has forgiven us of our sins. And if we've offended another person in some way, we need to find a way of working through that, of rebuilding that trust, of rebuilding that confidence. But we don't look back on the past in contempt against another person. Because as Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners, he says... That could have been me. That could have been us. We, too, have in our hearts the seed that leads to adultery. Maybe we don't follow that. Maybe we don't cross that line. But nevertheless, it's always been there. And but by God's grace, we can be forgiven. Now, what Jesus does through all of these words, through all of these, these ideas, is to remind us that none of us can do it. Unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, who can live that way? How many of us can live the way Jesus lived? 
in perfect obedience to every law. Some of us can obey some laws, but not others. It's hard to obey all of them. Some of you have a very uh, a tight commitment and diligence where you feel like I don't commit overt sins, and yet there's no love in your heart. There's no compassion. And sometimes the personality that drives us one way also drives us against other laws, other commitments, other obligations. And so none of us can live that way. But Jesus says he did. And though we can't, he did. And so we, in trusting in him, can have that forgiveness. And that's what the message of the Sermon on the Mount is about. That Christ himself has fulfilled that law. That he has met the demands that God makes upon us. Satisfied God's holy demands. And leaves us now with an opportunity to accept his sacrifice. His payment on the cross. So that we too can enjoy the benefits of God's forgiveness. Like Spurgeon's illustration of the dock worker. Forgiveness doesn't come simply by saying I'm sorry. The debt always has to be paid. And if the grocer doesn't demand payment, that means the grocer has paid the debt by the loss. And that's what God does for us. God absorbs the loss. We could never pay him back. God, in Christ, makes that payment. He absorbs the loss. And it falls now on us simply to trust and believe in a God who has spoken, a God who's revealed himself. As Francis Schaeffer said, uh, he, is, uh, he is there and he is not silent. God speaks to all of those who will listen and hear his word. Let's stand as we prepare to dismiss our Father. As we look to these words of Jesus about the law, about our commitment to obedience, about anger and hate, about lust and love and Adultery, these ideas, Lord, we recognize that we fail, but we know in Christ we have a Redeemer who's provided a way of escape, provided a payment for our sins that's there for us to accept and enjoy the benefits of. And so, Father, we ask only that you'll open our hearts and minds to each be faithful and obedient. May we search the Scriptures and let the Scriptures search us out, examine us, and confront us for our failures. May we live consistent with our recognition of your faithfulness. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.